Hello, Barry Winbolt here with another episode to help you get a better handle on life. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about questions, specifically our reactions to them. Why do we react a certain way when we're confronted with a question, particularly in certain situations like at work, at school and so forth? So why do we respond the way we do? automatically and often as though we are obliged to give an answer. We feel compelled to respond to a question. So I'm going to be talking about that and also giving a few useful suggestions on how to escape that trap we get ourselves into involuntarily or automatically, whatever you like to call it. I'm going to be talking about how you can use questions constructively because we don't give them a lot of thought. And when you do give them some thought, you can go a long way with a few good questions. And it's been said that uh, there are no stupid questions, um, only useful ones and more useful ones. But I like the, the quote I found when I bought a book one day. I buy a lot of secondhand books. And a few months ago, I bought a book and a postcard dropped out of it. And when I buy old books. I really like it when I find stuff in them, things that people have underlined or marked, pages, dog-eared pages turned over, bus tickets, theatre tickets. You see, I've, I've, I only buy second-hand books from sort of cultured places, but also um, stuff that people put in, newspaper cuttings, cookery recipes, all sorts of stuff falls out of books I've bought. And in this case, it was a question that said, it was a question, on a, it was a statement, I beg your pardon, it was a statement on a postcard. And it said, there's no such thing as a stupid question, but they're easier to answer. And that really got me thinking. But really what prompted this episode of the podcast is why do we get so hung up with why? And why does it do so much, cause so much trouble in our lives? As you know, or may not know, actually, as you are going to find out in the next few seconds, I'm a therapist. I've been a mediator and still do a little bit of conflict resolution. I'm a psychologist and writer. And I've had a particular interest since I started my psychology training or my psychotherapy training as it was back then in the early 1990s. I've had a particular interest in how we use language. And in particular, it was how therapists use language or more to the point, how they didn't use language very creatively. I was very struck by that, that many therapists had a rather staid and constrained range of questions they would ask. Anyway, I will probably come back to that. The main thing that drove me to this interest, I was working in other cultures other than the English-speaking ones. I was speaking other languages. I came back to the UK. I trained as a therapist and I was very uh, aware of the language, linguistically aware, you could say at the time, that we were using in our training. So it got me to thinking, I got to writing training courses on it eventually, and the rest, as they say, is history. So that question of why I know goes to the heart of a lot of heartache, a lot of difficulty in some people. Anyway, questions are powerful, and that's what interests me. And in particular, I've had a bit of a beef for a number of years about poor use of poorly framed questions, if I can call it that, particularly among professionals like myself, therapists, but also members of the legal profession, 
journalists, for God's sake, if I hear that question one more time, how does that make you feel? Well, you know, it just lacks imagination. It doesn't draw out information. But that's the problem with treating uh, the news as entertainment, I suppose, where feelings reign supreme, as we know. So, questions are powerful. What is it about them that we hear a question and we kind of genuflect? We, we just react rather than thinking uh, creatively or constructively. I'll give you an example. For many years, I was a consultant in organisations, helping to train people in their communication skills, but also offering training and various related activities. One of the things that I was often presented with was uh, the manager or somebody who come... One of the things I was often presented with was the question of how to deal with unwanted questions. So um, a manager might pitch up and say, when will that report be finished? Or a, a service user might ring and say, why haven't you got this ready for me? Or why isn't there a bed for my mother in hospital? Or what's the matter with you lot? And... Questions were often posed fairly aggressively to boot. So I was asked, how do you feel to questions like this? And that was a theme in many of the training sessions that I did. Well, the first thing that I'd ask is, what is it about a question that when we hear one, we feel we have to respond? We don't. There are many ways of avoiding responding directly giving yourself time to think. Playing for time may seem to you like evasion, but that's not what I'm talking about here. If a question is important, it warrants a reflected, an answer which has been reflected on. It warrants a little thought. But I noticed that in the workplace, many people seem to believe that if they couldn't answer a question straight away, they would be seen as somehow somehow deficient or ineffective or failing. So really, they were hamstrung before they started. They were caught up in their own beliefs about what they thought was expected of them. And so I would point out that there are many ways of fielding a question without actually having to answer it just yet. So, for example, one could say, well, that's a really good question. Can I come back to you on that? And if the uh, questioner says, no, you can't, I want an answer now, then you simply say, well, I know I'd love to give you an answer now, but I'm not prepared to jump in with both feet until I've had time to reflect on this and get an accurate response. So if you don't mind, I'll answer later. So that's just one example of how one might respond to a question with another question or with a statement that doesn't uh, address it correctly. Another thing you might say is simply, hmm, or good question, I wish I could answer it. Or even, God forbid, I don't know. I mean, think about it this way. How many questions are there in the universe? Unlimited, right? We can, nobody can ever have an answer to any question that can be presented to them. So it's reasonable to expect that on a given day, 
you're going to get a few questions to which you don't know the answer or you don't know the answer yet. So the expectation of oneself that if it's me, that I should be able to answer those questions immediately just because somebody asks it of me, asks them of me, uh, is completely stupid, actually. It's very short-sighted. The other thing is that very often, because my work was often involving conflict resolution or some form of confrontation, um, you may or may not know, I wrote a book in 2002 called How to Deal with Difficult People, which I thought the sub subject was done and dusted at that point, but it turned into almost a career in itself, although I didn't want it to be, but it was something I continually got called back on. And of course, over the years, I've built up a huge repertoire in that area. And obviously, when you're dealing with what are known as difficult people, and yes, I know there's no such thing as a difficult person, only difficult behaviour, but that doesn't sell books, you know, so it's called difficult people, because we all identify with that. So when I would be asked a question, it was usually in the frame of somebody dealing with some sort of difficulty, confrontation, relationship problem, something like that. So very often questions are used by aggressors, I'll use that term broadly, but in conflict, people ask questions when they're feeling aggressive. Well, why is this like that? What da, 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 da. When is this going to be that? It gives us a sense of control. But questions like that are very cheap. You can ask them till the cows come home. And of course, many of them have no answer. So what the responder or the potential responder, the person answering, is going to do is, as I say, genuflect. They're going to go into this reactive mode where they think, oh, I've got to answer this question. I've got to answer this question. And they start responding blindly. When actually, when a question is asked with that sort of aggressiveness or the purpose being to put you down, destroy you, uh, wrong foot you, put you on the back foot, whatever, the best way to do, best thing to do with it is to deflect it. It is not to answer the question and engage in a conversation which isn't going to go anywhere. Because the aggressor, as I've called him or her, is actually not interested in answers. At that point, all they're interested in is asking questions in an aggressive way because it gives them a sense of control and it gives them the ability to see as seem as if they're attacking. So it's a normal human reflex, by the way. It does seem very, very common that people do this when they get stressed or into a corner or they're feeling attacked. They'll very often respond with questions in this way. Feeling under threat, that's the word I was looking for. They very often respond by asking a series of questions. And of course, the most famous of all is that pernicious question, why? The interesting point for me years ago, and still is, was what is it in us that makes us feel, when we receive a question, that we must respond? That's one point. Second point is, apparently many people think that if they don't respond, they'll be perceived as somehow failing or inadequate, particularly in the workplace. And thirdly, those questions which have no answer 
have no future, or should they say, should I say, they do not generate useful conversation because they're about conflict. They're about the feeling behind the question rather than about eliciting useful information. So that's one thing I would say. And by the way, if you want to know more on this topic, there are two things I can recommend to you. One is my blog, Why Wouldn't I? But seriously, www.barrywinbolt.com. I've got quite a few pithy sort of posts and items I've written over the years. I've been keeping this blog for, who must be nearly 12 years now, but certainly some, from very on, early on in, in, in uh, sort of the blog days, I was keeping a blog and it's had several incarnations. But my uh, posts have stayed with me mostly through all of those incarnations and we're up to over... 1200 I think posts now on the on the blog and in that if you just put questions into the uh, search box you'll get some I hope interesting stuff the other thing that I found very useful and I can just see it here in my compact little studio on the south coast of England um, is a book by somebody called I probably heard my chair creak as I reached out for it uh, Mary Lee, I couldn't remember her first name, Mary Lee Goldberg. And this book is absolutely brilliant. The Art of the Question, a guide to short-term question-focused therapy. Now, forget the therapy word, folks, because this is actually about far more than that. And I found it a very useful book. It was also in the olden days when I first came across it, which was probably the late 1990s. Um, it was... Uh, uh, a symbol of my uselessness, uh, the fact that I judged a book by its cover. More specifically, I, judge it, I judged it by Mary Lee's first name, which interestingly, in a Freudian sort of interest, I mean, I couldn't remember a moment ago because I looked at this book and dismissed it. It came through to us, to our office uh, for review, among with several hundred books a year that came in at that time. And um, I discarded the book because I thought it just didn't look serious to me. Well, how wrong could I have been? Nevertheless, I put it on my bookshelf and a couple of years later I read it and I've been eternally grateful with my apologies, my sincere apologies to Mary Lee Goldberg, PhD, no less, for never, never having paid it the attention it deserved as soon as it came out. However, um, perhaps I've made amends because I've mentioned it here now and I have not ceased to mention it in my training events over the years ever since. So there you go. The Art of the Question by Mary Lee Goldberg, published by Norton, I think. Uh, if it's still available, you should be able to get it on Amazon. And um, also my blog, if you want to know more about this question of questions. And um, just a quick uh, interject here. If there's any topic related uh, to any of this stuff I talk about that you would like to see discussed on this podcast, then please uh, just fire me off an email or a comment on the podcast below the podcast. And I will do my, depending on where you get the podcast, you can't always leave comments. But either way, you can reach me at info at barrywinbolt.com and send me a question and I would love to uh, address it. If you do have a question on a specific topic, also I refer you to the blog at www.barrywinbolt.com, etc. Because there's a good chance that I've covered the topic at some point in my uh, blogging career. So back to the questions. 
So what is it about questions is the first point I've covered. The second point I covered was how can we use questions to be more productive? Well, that's tied in with the third point, which is this pernicious question, as I call it, this infernal little question, why? So perhaps I'll cover that first. My work as a, as a therapist and also my work as a mediator, I used to do more of that than I do these days, um, frequently revolves around or the, shall I say, the fix to the problem, whether it's a personal problem in an individual's case or a problem between individuals, as in family therapy or mediation. Uh, the fix often involves language. Uh, that is both the language we use to think about things and the language we use in addressing each other and responding to each other. Now, nobody teaches us this stuff. You might have had a little, depending on your training, if you work in one of the people-focused professions, you might have got a little training in the use of words and the use of questions and phrasing and so forth. But actually, there's not a lot of work that goes on in teaching us how to use language constructively. And specifically, questions are among, they are probably the most used form of words that we have. But a question, because it's framed as a question, and it has a question mark at the end of it, or in some languages before it as well, the question, because it's framed that way, it doesn't mean it is a question, i.e. a question to elicit an answer, i.e. more information. It could be a challenge. Why did you do that? It could be blaming somebody. What on earth did you do that for? It's all about tone of voice, it's all about method of delivery, time, place, context and all that. So because something is framed as a question, it doesn't mean it is a question in the sense that we have to respond to it with a sensible, detailed answer. Are we agreed on that? And that being the case, many questions that we are presented with will not be questions at all and therefore shouldn't be responded to as though they are a valid question. They should be acknowledged, of course, and I wouldn't suggest being rude or evasive, but one of the ideas I came up with earlier was to say, I don't know, or acknowledge it with, good question, I wish I knew, or a lot of people have asked me that. Why do you ask? Now, this is something I use very often when people ask questions, particularly in my work, because I say to people, Okay, well, I don't know the answer to the question, but if there was an answer to that question, how would it be useful to you? How would it be helpful? What would that enable you to do? And then we have, from there, usually stems a very much more interesting conversation. So what I'm pointing at here is, first, questions have many forms and many purposes, the general purpose, or the, should I say the, the purpose to which we uh, instinctively think they are put is not always what they're being used for. In other words, not all questions are worthy of a detailed response because they may not have been asked with that in mind. Uh, a standard uh, question that we use all the time, how are you? And of course, we don't want a detailed history of the person's health problems or 
a description of their latest marital spat. We're simply following a formula. So that's a simple example of a question that isn't really a question. It's just a, a rhetorical sort of statement that we use in order to oil the social wheels, so to speak. So the first thing I'd recommend is that you figure out when somebody asks you a question is whether it is a valid question that needs an answer or whether you're feeling pushed to answer it because that's how we are conditioned to respond. But actually, this particular question doesn't require an answer or maybe it isn't in your interest to answer it as a question at that point in time. Another thing I've recommended for many years in my training and elsewhere is build up that little repertoire of standard responses. Good question, I wish I could answer. Other people have asked me that. I don't know, what do you think? Fire it back to them. I'll get back to you on that. Oh, I'd love to answer that question. Oh, that's such an interesting question. You are so clever. Um, bit busy now. Can I get back to you in um, six weeks? Or whatever. It depends how evasive you want to be. Without being evasive, of course. And finally, I suggested asking, why do you ask? Because if you know what's behind a question, that gives you the information you need to answer it correctly. The questions, uh, dodgy questions as I call them, poorly framed questions, are at the root of many, many ongoing disputes. And Indeed, it's a way many human beings seem to deal with pain. I just want to know why they died is, is an expression of an emotion. But of course, there can be no answer to that, no satisfactory answer anyway. So we really have to think about the questions that we're being asked and the questions we are using. Now, I, I talked about why, and I think I went a bit out of order again, but that's not for the first time, as regular listeners will know. And if you are a regular listener, hello again. Nice to have you along. Thank you very much. Anyway, back to the question of why. If you ask a question which begins with what, where, how, who, when, then what's happening in your mind? Think about it. What happened on the 17th? Where were you on the 17th? When the 17th came round, what were you doing? How was it all working on the 17th? You know, all of those sorts of questions around a specific date in this case, but just for example. Before you can answer those questions, any of them, you're going to have to go into your mind and have a little search for through your memory for a recollection of what was happening, in this case, on the specific date, but it could be in any other situation. What, where, who, how, when tends to prompt a search in your mind. Some people call it a transderivational search, but I'm not banging on about that too much because I don't know the origins of that term and I don't know even if it's a, a genuine concept. But either way, you have to go and search your mind. You have to search the archives for factual information or information which, according to your memory, is factual. It happened. You're reporting on an incident. You're reporting on something you think you know about. What, where, when, how, who sends you on a search. You have to recall or pull up information about an event, let's say, for simplicity. Now, let's frame another question. If I say, why did you do that? Why on earth did you do that? Or why did you do that? I wonder why that happened. Now that 
tends to lead to speculation for a number of reasons. Firstly, most questions don't have an answer, general questions like that. Do you know why you did such and such on a certain day? It might be that you did it, you do have a very good recollection of that. Well, I did that because so-and-so had fallen over and needed taken to hospital and that led to this and that and the other. Okay, in that case, it's okay. But if somebody asks you, well, why were you late this morning? They're not actually interested in details about the budgie dying or the cat getting sick or your child having to stay off school and you had to make childcare arrangements. They're not interested in that. Really, they're reprimanding you for not being on time. And more importantly, in a lot of those cases where you get asked a why question, it won't be about something which is requiring the recall of factual information. And because you'll feel compelled to respond you will have to dream up, literally, you'll have to confabulate, you'll have to create an answer in your mind, which isn't drawing on observed fact or recollection, it's drawing on your imagination. So when you ask somebody why, you get a similarly confabulated answer. But I think there's something genuinely a little deeper and a little more troubling than that, which is, what does the question why put us in touch with? It tends to put us in touch with all of those times in our earlier life where we've been asked why as a reprimand or as a way of blaming us or as a way of justifying our existence. So we immediately kind of go back, telescope back in time, but we do not respond in the here and now in the same way. We're responding, uh, well, we're reacting in fact to uh, all of that history we've got around the question why. If a question is valid and you start it with why, if it's a valid question, you can switch that and ask a when, what, where, how, who question and you will get better quality information. If somebody asks you why something happened, then my response would be to acknowledge that question and say something like, why do you ask? Or what leads you to ask that? Or how can I best answer that? Or what answer would satisfy you? To try and draw out before you leap in and try and give some answer to try and draw to their rather vague question, try and draw out a little more information so that you can answer a little more specifically and a little more accurately. Well, this brings me to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank you for your unwavering attention and uh, I hope you found it useful. There is a lot more where this came from, folks. I've already mentioned uh, the website, the podcast. Uh, um, there's a lot more where this came from. I'll be following up with some quite interesting interview. Very interesting. And there's a lot more where this came from. I'll be following up. There's a lot more where this came from. I've already mentioned my blog at www.barrywinbolt.com. I'm not trying to sell anything. It's all free, but it is a useful resource. I've also uh, got some very interesting interviews lined up, one on decluttering, but not decluttering the Marie Kondo style of decluttering, although there is some influence there, but decluttering your life or decluttering your work. It's specifically with uh, former friend and colleague Rick Goff. He's a, he's a friend, not a former friend, but a former colleague. And um, so it, that looks like very interesting stuff to come up. And uh, I've got a couple of other interviews lined up, which I will not tell you about just now, mainly because I haven't been firmed up. 
Anyway, this is Barry Winbolt saying thank you very much for paying close attention to this podcast. Please share it if you think it's been useful. Take a trawl through the other topics that I've got on the uh, on the Podbean site or on whatever your preferred podcast provider is. And um, I'll look forward to speaking to you in the very near future, I hope. That's all from me. And for now, it's over and out and over to you. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Goodbye.